Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Hello, sunshine. Gotta make hay while the sun shines. What's this? This is Hello, Sunshine. What if by sharing our stories, we could change the world? Welcome to Hello, Sunshine. Hi, I'm Kelly McCreary, and I am very excited to be hosting season three of How It Is, the show where you hear women tell their own stories in their own words. We're unfiltered, real, and totally ourselves. You're a queen. This season, we're all about journeys. And we're starting off the season by talking adventures, getting out of your comfort zone, and hopefully learning something about yourself in the process. This season, we asked some incredible women to share a part of their life journey with us, whether it's an adventure, an escape, a souvenir, an unexpected encounter, and finally, what it means to find home. Some of the women you'll hear from this season are comedian Phoebe Robinson and musician Michelle Zauner, who you may know as Japanese Breakfast. You'll also hear from a rabbi, a roller derby player, a YouTube star, a psychiatrist, and a writer. I can't wait for you to hear these stories. One of my favorite adventures was learning how to ski. My friends, who are basically pros, went off to the advanced slopes while I took a beginner skiing class. But I actually got the hang of it. The teacher even said I was a natural. So he took me on more and more advanced trails. But at one point, I realized I was on a trail of moguls, and I literally flipped. Like, I flipped over and landed on my head. But I loved it. It was such an adventure to do something completely different and so terrifying and so fun. So I want to know. What's your favorite adventure? We had a Sun Valley adventure this summer where we did, you know, fly fishing and camping and being in nature is always my favorite adventure. For my birthday, Bay and I went to Copenhagen. We went to go see you two perform, but really just explore the city and really try to not do too many touristy things and really just get a sense of the culture. And I, I really love that trip. Uh, my last adventure was in Mongolia. I was there doing a reporting trip on women's health. My last adventure was in New York when I was there for work and had an evening of uh, prowling the East Village with an old friend. We discovered an absinthe bar. We went to a vegan tiki lounge. We had a few unexpected encounters. It was delightful. <laughs> the hospital where I gave birth. <laughs> For me to go back to Africa, growing up here, that was very adventurous for me to go in and try to dismantle a, a very male-dominated culture. And that was extremely adventurous for me. Today, we are going to hear from three women who have embraced adventure in their own unique ways. New York Times writer Jada Yuan, Rabbi Danya Brudenberg, and actress Jamila Jamil. First, I want to introduce you to Jada Yuan, who is the expert in adventure. She is the 52 Places Traveler for the New York Times, which means she has spent the past year traveling to, well... 
52 incredible places around the globe. We caught her on a stop between Fiji and South Korea, as one does, and asked her what she has learned on this journey and her best advice on how to bring adventure into our lives. Right now, I am in Fiji, and I'm in my hotel room with just like all of my travel gear spread out before me. I am going to Gangwon, South Korea, which is going to involve a trip through Seoul, which will involve me trying to get a visa to India and also trying to squeeze in a doctor's visit before my healthcare runs out. So that's what's happening. (laughs) I traveled through Patagonia by myself and I decided to climb a volcano that said it was was three hours. And when you are out of shape and not a regular climber, that volcano was like five hours. Plus, it was raining torrentially. And I don't know, just like I got to the top. I didn't have any cell service. And I made a friend on top of the volcano. And I, I think that like the idea that I was so far away from just just everything that I'd known six months ago. You know, it's, it's not like I'd never climbed a mountain before and I'd never gotten caught in a rainstorm like that, but there was no real safety net. That was sort of where I, I realized, like, oh, I can do this. I, I really, I can just put friendliness in front of everything and adventure in front of everything, and it's probably going to be okay. People are good. People help you. You you don't even have to speak the same language as someone for them to be a nice, warm person and help you get to your next destination. They want to make sure that you're okay. You should always stay aware of your safety. It's not something, especially as a woman traveling on your own, that you want to let your guard down on. But it doesn't have to rule your life. And it doesn't have to determine the decision of the experiences that you want to have. Like, don't hold yourself back. Fear doesn't have to rule your life. And it shouldn't hold you back. That is going to be my new mantra. So the older I get, (laughs) the more I understand the overwhelming power of fear and how it can absolutely hold you back. And if you pay attention to the news and everything going on in the world, it can just be paralyzing. So I'm so glad that Jada could remind us that the world is full of good people and fear should never be an obstacle to our adventures. Our next storyteller is Rabbi Danya Rutenberg. Her work focuses on what she calls the messy business of being a person in the world (laughs) and how spirituality can inform our everyday lives. I just love the title of her most recent book. Ready for it? It's called Nurture the Wow, Finding Spirituality in the Frustration, Boredom, Tears, Poop, desperation, wonder, and radical amazement of parenting. Woo! Motherhood. That sounds like the most intense adventure you could have. I'm sure you moms out there agree. Even though she's now a rabbi, Danya wasn't always so connected to her spirituality. In fact, when she was a teen, she considered herself an atheist. 
But as she reached her 20s, she found herself searching for a deeper meaning to life. So she went looking for it thousands of miles from home. I was 25 when the fabulous, glittery life I'd been living in late 90s San Francisco began to feel hollow. I was looking for meaning, to answers to life's biggest questions, and I was convinced that I couldn't find them where I was. So I bought a plane ticket and packed my bag. My first stop was Spain, to chase a medieval fantasy of Jews and Christians and Muslims all trading notes about poetry meter and techniques for inciting mystical states. This was, I was sure, what would be waiting there for me. Toledo, once called the City of Three Faiths, was my first stop in Spain, and it was disappointing. The 800 years since its heyday had not been kind. It was now a small, slightly run-down town with more traces of the Inquisition and the expulsion of Jews in 1492 than its intellectual past glories. After Toledo, I headed to Escorial, a town north of Madrid. I'd been told, at a bus stop, by a man named Raúl, that there was some sort of magical, spiritual place there, some place beyond the laws of physics and gravity. At least, that's what I thought he said. My Spanish wasn't fantastic. Okay, then. This is what I was looking for. This was travel. The main attraction in Escorial was a large palace-slash-monastery built by a 16th-century king. It was, frankly, not very interesting. I asked around, was there anything else to see in this town? Oh, someone said, you must be looking for the Cité Felipe II. This, it seemed, was the special location that Raúl had mentioned. It's over there, I was informed, by someone gesturing towards a very imposing mountain. I began to walk, my big backpack buckled firmly on my back. The path was steep and hard to climb, but I climbed. I felt like a woman on a mission. Finally, I reached the top. Evidently, many other people had as well. The park at the mountain's peak featured several snack shops, families picnicking, and a ground littered with beer cans and ice cream wrappers. There was a parking lot where people had left their cars after driving up. Later, I figured out that the word that I had thought was cite, which evidently doesn't actually mean sight or anything else, which is what I get for not really knowing Spanish, was actually silla or chair. That is to say, this place was nothing more than the lovely view from which King Philip II had sat to watch his palace's construction. No mystical mystery spot, not even any mystery. I'd been looking for a profound experience. Instead, I found a second-rate set of park benches and picnic trash. Crushed and cranky, I ducked around the side to have a little quiet before beginning my disembark. I was on a decent-sized mountain. The hillside view was gorgeous. I sat down, and I began to breathe. I focused my gaze on the tree branch not far off. I breathed in. I breathed out. I tried to breathe with the tree. I find it difficult to explain what happened next. I breathed deeper and deeper into the tree, and suddenly I could absolutely, completely see my consciousness in the tree. And then I could see the tree's consciousness, whatever that means, somehow in my own mind and body. I looked at a bird. Just as I was the tree, I was the bird. There was only one consciousness, and it was mine and the trees and the birds and bigger than all of us, and it was God's. Everything really was nothing. I could see it. 
just as the atoms in my legs were in motion, and fundamentally the same stuff as the ground. The ground was in motion, and of the tree, and the bird was of the branch. It was creation and destruction, but it was really neither, because it was all one thing, constantly changing form. Blessed are you, God, who resurrects the dead. Dazed, I hitched a ride down the mountain with a couple of nice women from Madrid. The magical feeling began to flicker on the bus to Cordoba. I found myself next to a very persistently chatty man, and irritation began to win out over euphoria. But I was still feeling the meditation's effects to some degree. Over the next day or two, I giggled, delighted at oranges rolling around the Cordoba streets. I studied the ripples on a fountain. I was convinced that I finally really understood haiku. I'm sure I was quite a sight. Gradually, though, my old restlessness came back. I started to feel lonely wandering around the city on my own, and the feeling of blissy serenity ebbed away as an increasingly loud chatter of memories and fantasies reclaimed my brain. I went to the other side of town to find an internet cafe for the same reasons I always did, because I was bored, because I was convinced that something hideously exciting, more exciting than the day I was already having, would be waiting for me in my inbox. The day after that, it was as though the escorial thing had never happened. My journal entries had devolved from rhapsody to snark. I was aware that the enchanted way with which I had regarded the world right after the meditation was gone, and I felt sad about it, but I didn't know how to make it come back. I was stuck back in my old, usual, neurotic brain, and there didn't seem to be much to do about it. By the time I got to Sevilla, where I rented a bike for zooming around town, contemplated buying overpriced but adorable shoes, and stayed out at a dance club until 4 a.m. with some random people that I had met at a hostel there, the world had most decidedly returned to its separate forms. This, I eventually understood, was par for the course. Fancy experiences do not hit some magical reset button in which all of our anxieties and dramas are suddenly erased. But, as I still had yet to learn, it takes the grunt work of an ongoing religious discipline to put all those insights into a framework, to nurture fragile sprouts into something strong and hardy. My Jewish practice was a little bumpy on the road. I had brought a prayer book with the intention of using it every morning, but I barely touched it. I tracked down the sole Friday night service in Sevilla, but didn't quite get around to it the next week in Barcelona. Gibraltar was small and British. I tagged along to Shabbat lunch with some geriatric tourists and spent the afternoon, lonely, walking along the water with my journal. When I sailed into Tangiers and traveled through Morocco, I sought out Jewish communities on most Friday nights. Religion hung in the air. Calls to prayer ricocheted through the streets five times daily. Bus stations and restaurants had special rooms for patrons to worship as needed. Here, I saw more acutely the holes and inconsistencies in my own behavior. The neglected prayer book, the blessings I sometimes forgot to say, the intercity buses I caught on Saturday mornings, sometimes passing up Shabbat lunch invitations to do so. I had missed the holiday of Purim entirely. But there were so many other kinds of experiences. I sat for hours on a musty rooftop on the Moroccan coast watching the Atlantic roll in. In Marrakesh, a couple of local girls that I met took me to a Bollywood movie and to the hammam baths and gifted me with an elaborate henna for my hands and feet. For luck, though I was a rich American who needed luck much less than they. I found myself in so many different contexts, 
reacting to so many different kinds of stimuli, and I barely knew who I was after a certain point. This is, in part, why leave-taking looms so large in the Bible. When we venture out of our usual lives, who we are becomes up for grabs. Rather than holding on to the same identity in every context, as is so easy to do amidst the comforts of home, we shift and change and become new in every moment, in every new situation. In travel, practically every situation is new. Like the great, golden everythingness that I met in Escorial, we rise and fall away, and our sense of self melts and melts again. Sometimes, as our ideas about ourselves become less fixed, the walls separating ourselves and others, ourselves and God, begin to lower. Climbing the steps of the Great Alhambra, getting lost in the Fez Medina, finding common ground with the full spectrum of people that I met in cafes, bars, and bus stations, carrying only the barest minimum of belongings with me, I became someone wider and more multi-hued than I had been before I left the U.S. to travel. Not only because I could be, but because I had to be. The crucial piece is not that we leave where we've been geographically. It's that we allow ourselves, no matter where we're situated, to leave who we've been. That is an incredibly powerful idea, that we hold our spirituality within ourselves. I know, I know, it's easier said than done. So I grew up in a house where my dad kind of forced us to meditate. Like, there were four of us kids, and three of us had to share a room so that we could have a meditation room in the house. I I was never, ever into it. Like, I was rolling my eyes at my parents, not into it, kicking and screaming. But then when I was an adult... I took a meditation class, and there was something about how that teacher spoke about meditation that it suddenly clicked. It was like all of those lessons from my childhood were unlocked. So you might think that to have a spiritual adventure, you need to travel to these far-off holy places. And don't get me wrong, that can work for some people. But the reality is, our greatest spiritual journeys happen within ourselves as we grow and adapt to the adventure of our everyday. You know, something wonderful about these lives we lead is we have no clue where we're going to end up. We might spend a decade daydreaming about our dream jobs, and then poof, all of a sudden, they're handed to us. Sometimes all it takes is a leap out of our comfort zones to fully realize our full potential. When I was 29... I quit acting. I felt like my career and my creativity had plateaued, and there was one job in particular that I didn't get that sort of really turned things for me. The actress who had landed it was perfect for it. And I sat on the subway in New York thinking, okay, what else? And I started making a checklist of all of the things I had been curious about that I I hadn't pursued because everything in my life had revolved around my acting career. I ended up moving to Spain to learn Spanish and and work on a farm because I was really interested in wellness and I thought that nutrition and urban farming might be a future career path for me. And it was an incredible year of my life. 
that ultimately led to getting a call from a good friend and whose play I had worked on um, in, in readings and workshops. And that play was finally getting a production. So I came back to do it and it was going to be my swan song, my swan song to acting. I would be the last thing I ever did. And the next thing I knew, I was I'd booked my first pilot and it was off to the races again. So <laughs> you just never know. You just never know where you might wind up when you actually follow your your passions and desires. So I need to have a fangirl moment. Our next storyteller is on my favorite show on television right now, other than my own show, obviously. It is The Good Place. Ugh. I love that show so much. Oh, it makes me so happy. Jamila Jamil plays Tahani Al Jamil on the show. The point is, we're all good people, right? We all did the right thing whenever we could. And that's why it's so nice to be here among you in this massive house that I want. I want this house. Give me it. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But really, give me the house. Can you believe that this is her very first acting role ever? It all came together when she took a huge risk and moved to the U.S. from London without a job or a plan. I could not. I am so type A, I could never. Which Jamila says was definitely out of character for her, too. She'd never done anything even remotely like this. And she'd been through a lot throughout her childhood. But I'll let her tell you about it. I definitely wasn't ever a risk taker or an adventurous person. I had had quite a difficult childhood and I think that shaped a lot of my character and made me someone who was very anxious and quite depressed by the time I was a teenager uh, for various different reasons, you know, partially being like part of my, you know, my family life, but also massively how badly bullied I was at school because I grew up in a time where England was incredibly racist towards uh, people from Muslim backgrounds and I came from Pakistan. So that was a really tricky time for my brother and I growing up in that country when it was still so racist Um, and so by the time I was a teenager on top of that I was also chubbier than other girls in my school I was much taller than other girls in my school I had acne I had braces I had glasses I was also on a full scholarship so I was way more studious than they were I wasn't going out I never drank I never did drugs I still have never drunk or done drugs I was just very reclusive I didn't have any friends growing up and by the time I was about 14 I'd sort of stopped even really eating So I just sort of was an anxious, depressed, anorexic teenager who thankfully got saved by being hit by a car at 17. When I was a very small child, I saw my girl. And my girl traumatised me for life about bees. Are you crazy? You'll get stung. You're right. Let's knock it down. What do you want it for anyway? For the meat. So my whole life now, ever since, and I've literally tried CBT therapy for this. If I see a bee, I uh, run away and I will do anything uh, in my power to avoid that one bee, whether it's chasing me or aware of me or not. I will risk my life to get away from that bee. So one day at 17 years old, I was walking down the street towards my house and I saw a bee on the same side of the road. And my natural survival instinct is sadly to run into traffic uh, when I see a bee. So I did that. I followed my instinct, I ran into the road, and I, of course, deservedly got hit by a car. What I didn't know is that because of the timing of it, I would then be hit across the other side of the road where another car was coming, and then that car hit me as well. And that's the one that really did the damage. Because I had adrenaline, I got up and walked straight away. 
I just got up and I was like, oh my God, I'm fine. I feel amazing. And I uh, I didn't take the details of any of the drivers because also I shouldn't because it was completely my fault. And I ran home and that was the last time I ran for two years. Once the adrenaline wore off, I was uh, in so much pain that I sort of lost consciousness. And when I came back to, had to call for my family and tell everyone what had actually happened on the way home. And I was taken to hospital and uh, just wrapped up in different kinds of casts. And it was a solid like year and a bit of lying in my bedroom predominantly on my own because I didn't really have any friends to visit me and my family had a lot of stuff that they were also having to get done so I would watch television like 24 hours a day and I think weirdly genuinely because I was watching TV 24 hours a day via osmosis I learned how to be a TV host and how to be an actor. I kind of get these wake-up calls once every 10 years of my life Uh, that tell me that I'm not doing enough with every day that I have and that I've slipped back into a plateau of taking every day for granted and complaining about small things that I shouldn't be complaining about because there really are champagne problems compared to most of the people's struggles in this world. And so one of those kicks up the arse was the car accident because of the evil bee. And then when I was going through depression and having a nervous breakdown and and going through severe anxiety and struggling terribly with with fame because in England you get more fame than you deserve because it's such a small place and there are so few people on television that people you're more notable than you should be really for what you do. I really didn't know how to handle myself or this industry and also that dichotomy of who you really are as a woman and who the world tells you to be. I always felt torn in two when I was in my 20s and that massively contributed to my mental illness and I wasn't really doing enough about it and then I got this lump in my breast that a doctor found and they make you wait a week to find out if it's cancer or not and so many women in my family have died of breast cancer. I was very, very scared and I spent that entire week meditating on what are the things that I will regret the most that I haven't done until now and if I don't have cancer, I'm going to go and do all of them immediately. It wasn't cancer and so I had to put my money where my mouth is and five minutes later booked a one-way ticket to Los Angeles, went and quit my job, quit my entire career in the United Kingdom, left my lovely relationship and said goodbye to all of my friends and hopped on a plane with half of my belongings and came here with no visa, no contacts, no friends, no clue. So I didn't have a plan. (laughs) I didn't know what I was going to do. But I was proud of myself because I've convinced myself that trying is winning and everything else is just cake. And so because of that, I was so happy with myself and so proud that I'd actually made the leap and done something that everyone in England told me not to do. I mean, literally everyone across the board told me not to go, not to give up my career, that a lot of people who are not friends of mine told me that I was too old and too fat and too ethnic to come to America at the near dead age of 29. <laughs> yeah, no, I was literally, quite literally told that, that I wouldn't, that I would just disappear and I would have no career to come back to. So that was stressful. So I definitely didn't have any confidence in myself. I'd always wanted to be a writer. I wrote a pilot. I got a manager based on that pilot at Three Arts. And then Three Arts were making this TV show at the same time called The Good Place with Mike Schur. And via my being there as a writer, I was able to hear about this audition and be put forward for it because they were looking for an annoying, overly tall, English Pakistani woman, which is basically me. (laughs) 
the best thing that ever happened to me was being hit by that car. It just changed everything for me. I highly recommend it for everyone. I really do. As long as you can come out of it somewhat, somewhat okay, still alive, I really think it gifts you more uh, than you would know. Uh, I say that somewhat tongue-in-cheek, as you can imagine, because I think not everyone is as lucky as I was when I got out of that car accident and recovered after a couple of years. But uh, I think any kind of big life-altering moment really does shift your perspective and you just realise that everything is not in your control and therefore trying to control life is so laughable and you really should just try to make yourself happy every day. That's my end goal. My definition of success really, really is happiness and physical affection. If I have those two things in my life and snacks, unbelievable snacks, that's it. Those are my, that's the three, those are the, that's the trifecta of what I hope to have in my life when I'm old. I think I'm probably incredibly emotionally adventurous. I push myself to all uh, limits of where I think I can handle, of what I think I can handle. Just the fact that I jump around from career to career to career and put myself, put my neck on the line. Uh, so I think that I do like to push my own buttons in an adventurous way. But when it comes to like, you know, nature or like traveling, I'm just not that guy. And I want to tell you that I am. <laughs> the truly great journey that I make uh, is mostly just the one from my bed to my couch. And my boyfriend had to buy a couch that feels like a bed because he knew that was the only way to lure the dragon out of the bed. Um, so that when we had guests around, I would actually sit with the guests rather than just shout to them from my bed, which is near our, near our sitting room. Um, I'm a sloth. I'm a sloth with breasts. I uh, was diagnosed as clinically weak, which is not an illness. It's just uh, it's just a sad thing to be called by a doctor. It means I've got no muscle tone anywhere in my body. Sometimes you do have to experience things in order to no longer fear them and to see them for what they are. Often our perception of what will happen is often worse than the actual reality of it. Just try anyway. There is no embarrassment in failure because trying is winning. There's another mantra, trying is winning. Because the simple act of trying something helps us grow and develop as human beings, even if we don't succeed. Do you have something that you've talked about doing forever, but you've been too afraid of what might happen? I hope listening to these storytellers inspires you to finally make that move. We'll be back next week to talk about unexpected encounters, which is another way of saying surprises on our journeys. Like the surprise of a full body slam encounter with another woman on the roller derby arena. I never thought I'd play a sport as an adult where I get to run into other adults at full speed, at full force. Strong as women standing Now that you've heard how it is, visit us on all the socials at Hello Sunshine and make sure to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps people find our show and hear these stories. On this episode of How It Is, you heard from Rabbi Danya Rutenberg, Jada Yuan, and Jamila Jamil. I'm Kelly McCreary. I'm an actor, an explorer, and a seeker of new adventures. How It Is is a production of Hello Sunshine. It is executive produced by Amy S. Choi. 
Charlotte Coe, Rebecca Lehrer, and Reese Witherspoon. Our senior producers are Kara Hart and Michelle Lands. Our development producer is Mary Philip Sandy. Sound designed by Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our theme song, Queen, is written and performed by Victoria Canal. I can't remember what I've been saying before, but suddenly that sounded so weird to me. Okay, sorry. That sounded so weird to me for some reason. Okay. <laughs>